Well, just yesterday, my wife and I were putting some locks on cabinets because one Lawson Rumley is now walking and we don't want him getting into certain cabinets. And if any of you know who I am, you know when it comes to uh, putting things together from nailing pictures on a wall to um, working with a screwdriver. Um, that was a good time for my wife and I. There was prayer. <laughs> there was. There was. She said the Lord answered her prayer immediately. Uh, there was perspiration. I was sweating. And, and uh, we were just putting little screws into a door. Uh, but we were doing it for a, something bigger than ourselves, right? It, what, we don't need locks on cabinets. We had a view of something bigger. Even though it's just the protection of our young son, we, we wanted to do something and we worked together. My wife and I did. She had her leg wedged up against the door. And, and we'll get into having the proper tools here in about three weeks. Uh, and I was with the screwdriver and my forearms were sore. But we were working together on something bigger. We were building something together. And we need to understand that we as a church body have something big to work on, something outside ourselves. And so the book of Nehemiah is going to show us how to... He built a wall and he restored a people, and so we're building something as well. And I want us to see today, before we dive right into this book, why did Nehemiah have to rebuild anyway? And so if you'll turn with me two places. If you'll turn with me to 2 Chronicles 36, and if you'll pull out this handout, Nehemiah, we'll just get, before we dive into the book, an overview. We're, we're in an airplane now, and we're flying over the land, just getting a picture of this great book. And on the front of your handout there, the book of Nehemiah, I gave you a print. It's from the print Nehemiah on the wall, and you can look at that full print. That's just a section of it at 12stoneart.com. It's a It's a beautiful picture, and I just wanted to give you some quick facts about the book of Nehemiah. It's 13 chapters, 406 verses. It's the sequel to Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book in the Old Testament. It's mostly narrative with uh, some documentary literature, which another way to say that is it's a great story, and there are some lists from the Jerusalem phone book, and we're going to read them because they're in Scripture. And then the author of this, some believe it's Nehemiah, some thinks it's Ezra writing with Nehemiah's memoirs, but either way, it's Nehemiah's work uh, for us to see, and his name means the Lord comforts, and the purpose, as you can see on the overhead in the bottom of your hand, is to restore God's glory to the city. So where does Nehemiah fall in the big picture of Scripture? If you open up your handout, this is basically the law through history in your Old Testament. I've divided up into four sections, trying to make it memorable. You have the pillars of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you see through all those sections, the glory of God is the purpose in all these books. In Genesis, God elected a people. He did not choose uh, the Chaldeans. He chose the Israelites. He chose one man, Abraham. And then he, that people found themselves enslaved at the end of uh, Genesis, and so he redeemed them in Exodus. And then he showed them the way to walk with him in Leviticus. He gave them the way to God through a perfect, clean sacrifice, and then how to walk with God. He gave them a bunch of laws, but it wasn't just because he was bored, and he thought, let me just give them a bunch of laws to follow. He was looking out for their best interest. And then that group of people came into the land and they had an opportunity to go straight to the land, but they didn't believe. 
And so he chastened an old generation, brought in a new generation, and then he renewed that same law in the book of Deuteronomy. That is, the, those are the pillars of the Pentateuch. And then we move to the links to the land. Joshua conquered the land, the judges ruled the land, and Ruth came into the land. And we see again the picture of God as the warrior in Joshua that he goes in and he, by the, the man Joshua comes in and he conquers the land through that people. And he does it in ways when we go through that book that we would have thought, hey, wait a second, you're just going to walk around that wall six times in silence? And then on the seventh time, you're going to go around seven times and you're going to pray and blow the trumpets and the wall's going to come down? Yeah. God works in mysterious ways. And he's the judge in, in the book of Judges. And then here's a people, they get into the cycle of sin and then they cry out to him and he sends a judge to restore them. And then they do it again, seven different times. And then we see the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful book that talks about a Moabite woman being brought in to the people of God through the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And so there are your links to the land. And then that transitions us from the law into the monarchy. And I called this the makeup and the mess up of the monarchy. First Samuel, you have the transition from Samuel to Saul. And then you see you are introduced to David. And then in Second Samuel, Samuel and First Chronicles, you see the transgressions and the triumphs of David. First Chronicles is actually in a book all on the triumphs of David. In Second Samuel, he's doing great right up until about chapter 11 when he commits adultery with Bathsheba and it goes downhill from there. But the Lord is gracious to him and gives him a son named Solomon son named Peace. And you see in First Kings and Second Kings, and the book of Second Chronicles spans both of those books. And you just see a united monarchy, united monarchy go to a divided monarchy. And the tragedy of a people who had the law, who had God on their side, but would not be obedient. And so he promised them that if they would walk with him, he would bless them and they'd be a blessing to the nations. But if they didn't walk with him, he would judge them. And that, about the time, in the, if you were to write down in 1 Kings, that's when the prophets start coming. And they're guys that they don't say anything new. They're just repeating the, the law. They're just covenant enforcers. They're saying, look back to the law, and God will bless you. If you don't, captivity's coming. And you see that in those dates. That David or Saul reigned from 1020 to 1000, and David reigned from 1000 to 960, Solomon reigned from 960 to 928, and then there was this split. And from 928 to 722, you had these infighting among the kings. And then in 722, the Assyrians came, and they took part of Israel into captivity. And then 586, the Babylonians came and took the rest of the people into captivity. And Jeremiah gave that great promise. After 70 years, I will restore you. And that's where you, if you look at Second Chronicles 36, you'll see this whole idea of a people of God worshiping under one God, following Him as the King under their under shepherds. You see that play down here in, Judah, in Second Chronicles 36, 1 through 16. You see Judah's decline; they're still rejecting the Word of God. And then in 17 through 21, you see Jerusalem captured and burned. And this is that. Date 586. It says in 17, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them into his hand. All of this was warned as a warning by God, and they still didn't listen to it. 
and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought back to Babylon, that he is Nebuchadnezzar. And they burned the house of God. This is it. You might want to circle Second Chronicles thirty six nineteen. And they burned the house of God, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem, and burned its places with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took them into exile in Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia. And so you get from Nebuchadnezzar to Cyrus. And there it says in 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And then in 22, Jeremiah gave a promise in his book. You will be in captivity for 70 years. And so you have Nebuchadnezzar and then you had um, Belshazzar and then you had um, Darius Well, before Darius, now you have Cyrus. In verse 22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah that, that might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Does God use non Christians? You bet. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, at the movement of the hand of God, A pagan king said this, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build up a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And if you see that and you look right at Ezra, it begins with the exact same verses to show you the links that here it is, this people who had began with Abraham had become a million, two million strong, found themselves into captivity. God still rescued them. He said, follow me. They rebelled against him. They were in captivity and by the stirring of God's hand. Now, the pagan king says, go back and restore Jerusalem. And if you look at 19 of Second Chronicles 36, it said they burned the house of God and they broke down the walls. The entire book of Ezra is about rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the house of God. I love how he uses that term, the house. And then if you turn to Nehemiah 1, this is where we start rebuilding the walls. So one is an area where you rebuild the temple where God can be worshipped and you rebuild the walls where the people could be protected. And so in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, that's a quick overview of where we are in the Bible. You could walk through all those books and they lead you right up to this point in time where Nehemiah wrote this about how God used him in salvation history. It says, Nehemiah in one one the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Not to be confused with other Nehemiahs. There's a Nehemiah in Ezra 2 in, th- in chapter 3 of this book and chapter 7 of this book. They were different. It's a common name. It's like Mike. If I were to have a men's study and I were to say, hey, Mike, I want you to come, Mike Jenkins would go, is that me or is that Mike Pittman or is that Mike Mansfield? Mike Fisher, who are we talking about? And so if Mike Jenkins were to be writing this book, right, he would put the words of Mike Jenkins, the son of whoever Mike Jenkins' dad is. 
just to distinguish him from the other mics. And same thing with Nehemiah. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. And that's about all we're told of his history. We know from the book itself that he's a cupbearer, that he was a layman, he was a businessman, that he was a builder of a wall, we'll see that, and that he was actually a governor of the people. More on, on the cupbearer next week. He wasn't just a butler. He was in an p- important position. But he was an ordinary man. Right? A layman. Much like many of us. I'd say much like all of us. He was a common man. But he had a deep, deep sense in his heart, a deep concern, and he had clear priorities for something bigger than himself. Look what it says in the end of verse 1. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, which is November, December on the Jewish calendar, in the 20th year. If you look at 2.1, it's the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes. And so you have Cyrus, you have Darius, who's the king when Daniel is around. And then you have now uh, Artaxerxes, same king as with Esther. And it says, I was in Susa, the capital, or in Citadel, of Susa. The capital and the citadel were always connected because where the might was, that's where the capital city was. And this was the winter home of the king. And so Nehemiah is there as the cupbearer to the king, it says in the end of, of verse 11. That Hanani, one of my brothers, a physical brother of his, it would be like Jared, my brother, came with certain men of Judah. Those are his spiritual brothers. And so you see the family, both the physical family and the spiritual family. And we see that here today. We see a father and we see a son. But we see those that family here today with a bigger family. We actually see two of those. And so we're here. He is my, my brother came with my spiritual brothers and I asked them. I asked them one simple question with two parts. I asked them concerning... Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And so you see Nehemiah's concerns were the people of God and the place of God. He had concerns for the good of the people and the glory of God. He had concerns for God's glory. And he had concerns for people. It's not one or the other. They're tied together. He was concerned for the glory of God and the good of the people. It says in verse 2 or in verse 3, and they said to me, so Hanani, his physical brother, and the certain men from Judah, his spiritual brother, said to him, the remnant, that's who the people are, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile, the remnant is in great trouble and shame. So the remnant, these are the people when Cyrus declared, go back and build Judah. These are the people. They came in waves. The first wave uh, was Zerubbabel, and he went and he built the foundation. And then Ezra came and he restored the law. And now the people will come on this third return with Nehemiah. And the remnant was there because they had escaped. They had escaped the Assyrians. They had escaped the Babylonians. And here are people who are in great trouble and shame. They're in great trouble because the walls are broken down and they're in great shame because the city, which was once glorious, is now destroyed. This city, which the Psalms talk about, if you read Psalm 48, this is 
make a joyful noise to the whole earth through this city. It's the joy of the entire earth was Jerusalem. In Psalm 79, it was the cry of Asaph for God to rebuild the city. And so you have the joy of all the earth become decimated, and here's Asaph in the middle of the exile writing a psalm. In Psalm 84, you're familiar with it. How lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Better is one day in your courts than a thousands elsewhere. Here's this city that was bringing joy to the world that's been destroyed. And in 87, it says, Of God to Jerusalem, God loves Jerusalem. Because that's where he would reside through the temple. That's where he would be made manifest all over the earth. And so these people were in great shame. And that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates were destroyed by fire. This city, which has once been the joy of all the earth, was a war zone. You need only look at the Middle East now and see some of the ruins of, of um, Baghdad. That's what it looked like. The city where God resided and would bring blessing to the world was destroyed. And next week we're going to look in detail at 5 through 11. But let me just creep into that paragraph. Here's Nehemiah's response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He sat down. He slowed down. He got word of what was going on. The glory of God was not being upheld and the good of His people was not being looked after. And so He sat down. When we sit down, we slow down. And He wept and mourned. He he reflected. He looked back, quite possibly, He looked back over what Jeremiah had written, what he had had in the law, and He looked back over it and He wept. You will see that next week as He calls out to God of the covenant. And he wept and he reflected. He slowed down, he reflected, it caused a deep stirring within his own heart. And then he fasted and he prayed. That is, he not only slowed down and reflected, but he trusted God. I'm going to give up something in my own life, food, and I'm going to talk to God. And look how he did this. As soon as I heard these words, it was immediate. I sat down and wept and mourned, not just for an hour, not just for a day. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. It hit him. Something's wrong. First four verses, how do we apply this to our life? Nehemiah was a common man, like all of us. He was a common man with a deep concern for the glory of God and the good of his people. He was a common man whose life changed in a moment. It's a coffee here. It's a a conversation there. He asked a question of his brothers. It was on his heart. I'm here where I'm working, serving, but my heart is back at home. He was a common man with an uncommon concern 
for the glory of God and the good of his people. His life changed like that. Moses' life changed like that. He was out shepherding sheep. And it says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And he would be the leader of the people. David was out shepherding sheep. And he comes back and, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who mocks and taunts the armies of the living God? Peter had a bad night fishing. Comes ashore and the Lord brings in some fish, Luke 5. And Peter says, woe is me. I am an unclean man. And so we see from Nehemiah, he's a common man with uncommon concerns for things bigger than himself. So the question I want to, what, what weighs on our hearts? What weighs us down? Are we concerned for God's big kingdom or do we get so caught up into our little kingdom that we miss the bigger picture? Do we have the information in front of us? He had the information and the rest of this book is the working out of how the Lord put on his heart to go back and live for something bigger than himself. Because when we have information, that leads to obligation. When we know about somebody that needs, if you need a jacket and I know about that and I don't give you a jacket, I don't love you. It's as simple as that. Right? And he had information that had an obligation. And when we come to a point where we have a deep love for God and the glory of his people, the good of his people, it'll change our lives. William Wilberforce had a deep love for God and the good of the slaves, and he worked on it in England. Lincoln did it here. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher from England, had a deep concern for God's glory to minister to little children without parents, and he, so he started orphanages. Second Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for himself, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, Paul even ties it to the gospel that because Jesus Christ died for our sin and he rises again for our justification, that death no longer has captivity on our life. We are free. We will die one more time, but we will be with Jesus forever. Because of that power, we don't have to live for ourselves anymore. Because of the gospel, we can now live for the gospel. And so my challenge to myself and to everybody here, is let's build something together. Let's have a deep concern, deep concern for God's glory and the good of his people. Let's build something together. If you turn on the back of your handout, you will see now that was the broad context of Nehemiah, now the narrow context. You see an outline for the book, and then you see my challenges to us. Let's build something together. Let's build a church And we're going to follow what Nehemiah does. Let's build a church that prays continually. Amen? Let's build a church that works diligently. Let's build a church, and when we do this, guess what? We're going to face opposition. Nehemiah did. We're going to. But in the midst of all that, let's build a church that shows compassion. There's a church that keeps records of people. There's lists in here. So they know who's part of who. Let's build a church that submits to God's word. Nehemiah 8, they say, say to Ezra, bring the book. They didn't want um, fads. They wanted the book. Let's be a church that confesses sin. Let's be a church that commits to God's way. And let's be a church, as we'll see, that needs to persevere. 
The major themes of the book can be worked out here. The foundation of that wall, God's word. The capstone is his reputation. And individually, we're God's remnant through prayer and perspiration work. We can build something not only in this church, but in this valley. That the Bible calls us and makes reference to us as being part of something bigger, part of God's building. He wants us to build. Jesus says in Matthew 7, if you build upon the rock in the day of the storm, it will stand. But if you build upon the sand, it will be wiped away. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2, together we are God's building. We're being built together upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And the church is what they call the church and what Paul calls it in 1 Timothy is the pillar and the support of the truth. Let's build something together. Let's build a church based upon God's word for God's glory by a people who believe that they can bring good to the world, good to this church, good to this valley, good to the nations. And so my questions are these. Do you think this valley needs God's glory? Do you think this valley needs to see a church working for the good of not only its own household, but every person in the valley? So the perspective Nehemiah had, he had the concerns. He said, I asked them concerning the people and concerning Jerusalem. God's glory, the good of the people. It's worked into the mission statements in that packet for you to read. Eagle Bible Church exists to develop fully developing followers of Christ who bring glory to God and good to the world as members of a local church engaged in culture. And so how did he do it? How did he do it? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept and I mourned, and I fasted and I prayed. And so my challenge to us You should have a card in your chair. He fasted and he prayed for days. If you go to 2-1 in the month of Nisan, which goes from November, December to March, April, he fasted for days, 90 to 120 days. And so based upon Nehemiah 1-4, Here's your practical application. Some say, sometimes your sermons don't have application. Here it is. 90 days. September 25th to December 25th. What can God do through me and you? Why September 25th? Well, I want you, before you just run right out, I want you to pray about praying with me for 90 days. I want you to spend today up until Friday and go, okay, Lord, Looks like Nehemiah saw a concern for your glory and and your people. Sounds like a good thing for me to be concerned about. Was Jesus not concerned about God's glory? Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus was about the glory of God and he was about those people. I come to the lost sheep of Israel. So I would like you for the next few days to pray about Fasting and praying for the next 90 days. Fasting. That's what it says. He, so I continued fasting and praying. Fast to give up something 
doesn't necessarily always mean food. Some people can't give up food. Give up something, replace it with prayer for God's glory and the good of his people. Maybe you're one that can't, because of medical conditions, food is not the issue. Okay, maybe it's TV, maybe it's Facebook, maybe it's whatever it is. You need to deny yourself that. Reason why food works is because you're reminded of those hunger pains. Oh, I'm so hungry. I've got to pray. And I'm not asking you to fast 90 days. I'm thinking maybe you pray about it. Maybe it's one meal a week. It's one lunch a week that you're going to say, for these 30 minutes that I would be enjoying a minturn mile. Oh, this smells yummy. Mmm. <sighs> Maybe I'll just put the minturn a mile away. And that doesn't mean you like at 12 to 12.30, you don't eat the minturn mile and then at 12.45 you do. No, you, you eat breakfast and then you just say, no minturn mile for me today. And that you go for that 20 or 30 minutes that you would be having lunch and you do that. You take your card out and you say, Lord, what can you do through me in this church? Both individually in your own life and family Maybe it's your individual walk with God. Maybe it's your family's walk with God. Maybe it's your family's commitment to this church. But for 90 days, what can the Lord do through me and you? And maybe, maybe it's, 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 you want to go for more than that. Maybe it is a juice fast for whatever. I'll leave that for you and the Lord to work out. Fasting is removing something in your life, replacing it with prayer to really call upon God to see what direction He gives. That's my challenge to you because that's what the Bible says. He fasted and he prayed for days. So, I'm going to end a little early today. I say we pray. I say you're, wherever you're sitting, we'll pray for about, I don't know, until I... Turn them until I tell them to turn the music off. But take this card with you. It's a fun little card. Put it on your dashboard. Put it in your Bible. But if Nehemiah felt like he needed to, to get alone and do this for days, I think it, it would be for us, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, for the good of this church, for the good of this valley, for the good of this world, to take this card and commit to something. But again, think about it. Because it's the 25th of September through the 20th. That's, that's this coming Friday through Christmas. What can God do through me and you? And I would say, write it down. What is it that you're, what you would like to see, according to Scripture, happen in your own life, in the life of the church, and pray about it. And see how God answers it. Nehemiah observed the situation. Nehemiah reacted with Christian devotion even before Christ came. There was one who would come who would cry over Jerusalem again. His name is Jesus. So what can, what can Jesus do through us for the sake of this community and the world? So what I'm going to do is pray, and then I just ask you to gather around with whoever's around you, and just pray. And then we'll end after the song, after one song is up. How about that? Father, your word calls us.
to give up the things closest to us and to talk to you. Because Nehemiah saw it right. He had the perspective of your glory and the good of his people, but he also had the priority that he was going to pray. Father, help us, enable us, make us a people of prayer. We realize that you will fulfill every resolve for good by your power. So, Lord, as we pray, might you encourage us, comfort us, convict us, change us. And might the next this church be different after 90 days because of the work you'll do through fasting and prayer. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.